Turn with me, if you would, to Judges chapter 1. We'll start at the beginning. Judges chapter 1 for this morning's text. It's to the left of the middle, more toward the beginning. For, for those of you that aren't super familiar, while you're turning there, <clears throat> I came across some, um, some pretty interesting headlines as I was doing some reading earlier this week. And I have to admit, as I read these uh, reports, they, they, they made me sad and even sort of um, sickened to a point. These were the headlines that I read. It says, woman judge says travelers no longer safe on highways. And here's another one that says, family feud leaves 69 brothers dead. Um, powerful government leader caught in a love nest. Uh, here it says, gang rape leads to victims' death and dismemberment. And then the last one that really, uh, it said, girls at party kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. Now, I know as we take these in, I know we're, you know, we're certainly aware that, you know, we, we all hear these kinds of sensational headlines all the time, and we just kind of come to expect that they're part of our morning you know, news feed that comes across the internet or through our phones or whatever, and, and we're not even surprised anymore when we hear these kinds of reports unless we hear them on a Sunday morning at church, right? Um, but what I have to tell you, honestly, is that these headlines didn't come from this week's news at all, and instead they actually describe some of the exact events that we're going to encounter as we study through the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is a book of defeat and of disgrace and of disappointment in the history of the nation of Israel. Pretty enticing so far, huh? That sound pretty good? You know, in, in, in the very same way that the book of Joshua, it continues the story of Israel from uh, the death of Moses. And in the same way, now the book of Judges picks up the story again after Joshua moves off the scene. And it's a discouraging contrast that we see just in the opening pages of this book as compared to the closing chapters of Joshua. In the book of Joshua, you remember it ends, and you see this nation that's resting from war, and it's enjoying the riches that God had given them in the promised land. And you see that the book of Judges instead pictures Israel in a time of suffering from invasion and from slavery and from poverty and from civil war. And, of course, we ask, well, what happened? And what we're going to see weeks from now as we sort of reach what is the key verse of the book of Judges. In chapter 17, it explains, it says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you remember, of course, at Mount Sinai, the giving of the law, the Lord had, had taken Israel, and he had taken them to be his special kingdom of priests. And what he declared is that he alone would be the one who would rule over them. And yet the people, following the death of Joshua, we're going to see in the coming weeks, they rejected God's rule over them. And the Lord was no longer king in Israel, the tribes were divided, the people started mixing with all of the heathen nations, and so it became really necessary for God to chasten his people, right, to discipline them, to get their attention once again. And so the book of Judges as a whole kind of shows us this time that's sometimes confusing and it's difficult and it's dark. And what happens is that because of this, 
many people neglect the judges, and they just sort of look at it as a kind of a dark ages in the, in the history of Israel. And yet what I believe is that if we neglect this book, what we really neglect is a wonderful account of the love and the graciousness of God and the way that he so lovingly corrects and disciplines and sometimes chastens his people. Certainly, everything we find out about man in Judges is depressing. And yet what we find out about God in the book of Judges is wonderful. Um, G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. He said that on the human side, it is a story of disobedience and disaster. And on the divine side, of continued direction and deliverance. And so what we see as we study through this troubled time, we see these seven distinct time frames, right, spanning about 400 years of the, the history of Israel. And in that, we see these seven separate cycles of blessing and then disobedience, chastening, repentance, and then finally deliverance. And we're going to see God raise up this series of 12 different judges or 12 different deliverers who would lead Israel kind of out of their sin and back to the Lord. Now, when the book uses the term judge, it doesn't mean that, you know, somebody who's sitting in a court in a, in a black robe and deciding legal issues. The, the Hebrew word there, shafat, has more the idea of like a heroic leader. So things were bleak, and this nation needed a hero. And in a very real sense, indeed, this is a book not only of history, but it's also a commentary, isn't it, on the world that we're living in now. And what we'll see of Israel corporately is what we sometimes see of our own lives personally, right? Because the book of Judges is a book of incomplete victory. It's a book of these repeated failures on the part of God's people to just trust in his word and then to claim his power and to enjoy his riches and his fullness. But rest assured, there is so much encouragement for us when we remember, again, as we read the Old Testament, we remember what Paul, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians. He said that the things that happened to the children of Israel happened to them as examples And they were written down for our admonition. See, the Old Testament is such an encouragement in the sense that we are not necessarily destined to repeat the same mistakes on our journey. Amen? So let's pray and just ask God that he would bless his word and give us understanding and uh, and speak to our hearts this morning. Amen? Father, we do thank you so much, Lord, for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement that it provides to us. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we open up your Bible this morning. Father, speak to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we sit kind of historically, right? The Jews, finally, they were led by Joshua into the promised land. They had been wandering, remember, for 40 long years in the wilderness. And remember, when the children of Israel reached the promised land, it was already filled with many nations. And all of these sort of small kings that were ruling over these smaller territories. And Joshua had led this nation collectively, you know, into these great victories over the major enemies that they had come to. And now he had paved the way 
each tribe now was to go in individually and claim by faith their allotted inheritance. And so we read in verse 1 of Judges chapter 1, But after the death of Joshua, it came to pass that the children of Israel asked the Lord, saying, Who shall be first to go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? Now, the people of Israel had great obstacles. They were surrounded by these people who lived the most terrible, immorally, idolatrous life. And it made their sins a constant temptation to the people of Israel. The 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 idolatry and the, the lives in particular of the Canaanites, they were focused mainly on three things, okay? On money, on sex, and on having a relationship with God on my terms instead of on God's terms. And boy, isn't it great to know we don't live in a place like that at all. We don't have those kinds of problems. Certainly the Israelites, right, they were just up against this formidable and and the odds and this opposition that they faced. And so at least initially, right, one verse into our text this morning, they're off to a strong start, right? Just as we can so often be off to such a great start, they're wisely seeking the Lord's guidance. They're asking the Lord, which one of us should be the first? Which one should go up first? And the Lord said in verse 2, He said, Judah shall go up. Indeed, I have delivered the land into his hand. Now, right here at the beginning, what a great pattern that we see established. We're going to see it over and over throughout the book of Judges. When Israel sought the Lord, he guided them. Right? God never failed to deliver his people and to help them when they sought him out. And this time, God directed the tribe of Judah, which of course was the largest and it was the strongest tribe. He directed that they should be the ones to lead the way in this first fight. And so in this sense, God's direction wasn't too hard to figure out. It made perfect sense militarily. And now it seems as though they're just perfectly positioned to go in and to take what was theirs. Now remember, at this point, all the different boundary lines for the 12 tribes God had determined those years before. You remember in Joshua 13 through 22, there's descriptions of how the tribes were to occupy. And yet the people, of course, hadn't fully claimed their inheritance. They hadn't dislodged and defeated these entrenched inhabitants of the land. You remember at the end of Joshua's life, Joshua chapter 13, after 13 chapters of conquest, The Lord said this to him. He said, you are old and advanced in years, and there still remains very much land yet to be possessed. Now remember, the children of Israel owned the land, but they didn't yet possess it, and therefore they couldn't enjoy it. And it shouldn't surprise any of you that this is such a picture of our Christian life, right? Because for us as Christians, that crossing over the Jordan... What that signifies isn't death and being taken up to heaven as the old sort of spiritual would would imply. But what it is, is it's that signifying the point where we move from death to self and from separation to sin. And we enter into that earthly spiritual inheritance of our faith. It's really entering into the spirit-filled life. And so the lesson here of the book of Joshua, as well as these 
opening verses of the book of Judges is that once we've crossed over the river, there are still battles to be fought and there are enemies that need to be subdued and there's ground that still needs to be taken in order for us to truly enter in and to claim and to enjoy that abundant life that Jesus purchased for us. And yet, all of that being said, what we can't forget is that we don't fight toward victory, right? We fight from victory, right? We fight from the victory that Jesus has already won for us on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Now, the Bible teaches that that our inheritance and our blessing and our riches, all of those things are already ours, right? Peter writes that we've been given all things that pertain to life and to godliness. And so what we do is we fight not to attain them, but we fight simply to claim them. Now, now shouldn't this, doesn't this kind of understanding and knowledge, shouldn't it change our whole outlook on the battle? I mean, it should give us just this tremendous sense of confidence, just as it should have here for the children of Israel. And so just as he's done with us, God called Judah to go up, and he's reassured them that he has already delivered the land to them. And what we see next is that Judah believed God's promises. They obeyed his counsel, and they even now would ask the people of the tribe of Simeon to go into battle with them. Verse 3 says that, So Judah said to Simeon, his brother, Come up with me to my allotted territory, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and I will likewise go with you to your allotted territory. And Simeon went with him. Now, of course, you remember that since Jacob's wife Leah had given birth to both Judah and Simeon, these tribes were actually what we would call blood brothers. And so here, what a beautiful picture Working together as God's people, they're going out now in the power of the Lord. And not surprisingly, then, we read in verse 4, that then Judah went up, and the Lord delivered the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they killed 10,000 men at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek in Bezek and fought against him, and they defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Again, what a great model for our ministry, seeking the Lord, obeying his guidance, and then working together as God's people always produces great results. So here, of course, with God's help, these two tribes, it says, they conquered the Canaanites at Bezek, and they came up against one of their kings, Adonai Bezek, which is probably just a title that means Prince of Bezek. And what we find out is that this guy tried to make a quick escape, After his forces were defeated, in verse 6, it says that Adonai Bezek fled, and they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. Happy Sunday morning. (laughs) Hey, is anybody serving chicken wings this afternoon during during the game? If so, I probably just ruined it for you. Okay, so what's up with this program, right? As if being defeated and captured and humiliated wasn't enough. Now it says they're cutting off this guy's thumbs and his toes, right? But here's the deal. Though we might think that what they did was barbaric, it was actually just very pragmatic, right? Now, now the major function of a king, of course, was to lead his people into battle. And certainly the loss of your thumbs would make it a little bit difficult, probably impossible, 
to really hold a weapon, right? And the, the loss of your big toes certainly would affect your footing in combat if you could even walk at all. And so in doing this, in a very real sense, they were disqualifying him from further royal office, and they were also diffusing any potential future threat that he might be. And actually, we read in verse 7 that this whole deal apparently was not at all uncommon because in verse 7 it says that Adonai Bezek said, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off used to gather their food under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And then they brought him to Jerusalem, and there he died. So the Lord of Bezek was properly paid back, in a sense, to what he had done to 70 other kings. No thumbs, no toes. Right? It's kind of a, a sad situation to find yourself in, for sure. And yet, when you think about it, it's great, because this Adonai Bezek and his 70 subdued kings is a pretty sobering picture for us of the very sad plight of anybody that's given in to and that's been incapacitated by the enemy, right? They couldn't walk or run correctly. They couldn't use a sword effectively. You know, they were in a place of humiliation instead of enjoying the good life. Here they're living on scraps and on leftovers instead of having a proper table, you know, a proper place feasting at the table. And this is what happens to us when we give in spiritually, right? And when we're subdued by our enemy, we come under his power and we forfeit our inheritance and our blessings and we end up incapacitated by our sin. And you're thinking, whoa, hold up there, Pastor Bill. He's up on the drama, right? It is, it is Sunday morning after all. What happened to Jesus and grace and all that kind of... <laughs> and yet really what we're going to see here is that if we allow the enemy to reign in or, or to have control over any part of our lives, right, to compromise with him at all is to be headed down what's sure to be a very slippery slope. And it makes such a difference when we just simply live by faith in the promises that God has given us and just allow Jesus to reign in all the areas of our lives. And when we do that, then we'll enjoy victory just as the Israelites here did. Because after this first series of great victories, look what happens in verse 8. It says that the children of Judah fought against Jerusalem and took it. They struck it with the edge of the sword and they set the city on fire. So the city of Jerusalem, right, was the next big victory. Um, interestingly, though they conquered the city, it says they didn't occupy it. Right? We're going to see this later in verse 21. And the occupation of, of uh, Jerusalem didn't actually happen until the time of David, right? all the way in 2 Samuel 5. That was the point when Jerusalem finally became the city of David and, and became then the capital of Israel. Afterward, it says there in verse 9, the children of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who dwelt in the mountains in the south and in the lowland. Then Judah went against the Canaanites who dwelt in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kirjath Arba, and they killed Shashai, Achiman, and Talmai. So what's happening here, they attacked the area south and to the west of Jerusalem. And this meant fighting in the kind of hilly country and in the foothills, which as it says there included Hebron. 
Now, this is the same place that Joshua, you remember, had promised to give to Caleb because of how faithful Caleb was to the Lord in that whole Jericho spy debacle. You remember that story? And it's interesting as we think about this, that these three men, Sheshai, Ahiman, and Talmai, they were all descendants of the giant Anak. Remember, that was the people of, the, of Anak. They were the ones that, origi- that ha- had originally frightened 10 of those 12 Jewish spies who first went in and explored the land. And now we see that even these giants and all of their clans with them are now conquered almost effortlessly as God's children are moving in and then taking the land by faith. What's even more interesting, I think, to think about is that these giants could have been conquered 40 years earlier, couldn't they? Because God was ready, you know, but Israel wasn't. Certainly they had the desire to take what God had for them and and to enter into that blessing, but they lacked the faith, didn't they, to believe him and to take him at his word. And, And how easy it is for each one of us to be caught in this same trap because we all so desperately long for everything that God has for us, and yet how easily we can be scared off by the giants, right, that are standing in the way, right? We know, you know, oh, how we know that, that there's this or there's that giant sin in our lives, right? It, whether it's lust or, or anger or bitterness or greed or unforgiveness or sex or drugs or pornography or fill in the blank, right? Put in your favorite sin there this morning, right? Whatever it is, this giant thing is keeping us from more of the presence and the fullness that the Lord has. And yet, though we know it, the sin is just too big, right? And the fight is just too tough. And so we just forfeit the blessing and we continue to be beaten by the giants and we end up just sort of staying in the wilderness of our own disobedience. And I think considering this whole giant thing, you know what else it tells us as we're watching Israel now approach the land for this second time? What it tells us is that 40 years later, the very same giants that had scared them away in the first place, the giants were still there, weren't they? They didn't magically disappear or die off. And there were actually probably more of them now than there were 40 years ago. So church, you know, avoiding a difficult battle with a difficult uh, a situation or a certain sin now only means that it's going to be there later. We're going to have to face it later, and we're likely going to have to face it in a bigger way, right? The giants will just probably become bigger and stronger, and there will be more of them once we get around to finally taking them on. See, God always leads us, but he never drags us into victory, does he? And God has all the time, literally, he has all the time in the world to wait for us. And it, it, in a very real sense, we're the ones that set the schedule for our own advancement and our progress based on how we do respond or how we don't respond in faith to the Lord. Okay, back to our text. 
you know, faith, right? Faith obviously is something critical here, and it's something that must have run in Caleb's family, as we spoke of Caleb, because the next thing we see is that the city of Debir was very courageously taken by a man named Othniel, who was Caleb's nephew. Verse 11 says, From there, or from Hebron, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. Now, the name of Debir was formerly Kirjath Sefer. Then Caleb said, He who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it, to him I will give my daughter Aksa as wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave him his daughter Aksa as wife. Now, as I said, we'll meet this guy Othniel again in just a couple weeks of Wednesdays because he actually is our very first of the judges. He's a man of faith, right? And we see that he was given Aksa, Caleb's daughter, for a wife as a reward for his faithfulness. And, of course, the Lord, too, rewards us for our faithfulness. But watch this next part, what's about to happen, because I think it creates a great lesson for us. Needless to say, water was a precious commodity. And all of that land that he was just given would be almost useless without it. And so Caleb's daughter, Aksa, now urges her brand new husband, Othniel, to go back to Caleb and ask him to give them the springs that were on the land, the springs of water that they would need. And now it was in verse 14, it was so when she came to him that she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey and Caleb said to her, what do you wish? So she said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have given me the land in the south, give me also springs of water Then Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. So Othniel looks like he was better at capturing cities than he was asking for favors from his new father-in-law, right? Because Aksa actually had to do it herself, right? She goes and she asks her father, Caleb, and we see that he gladly gives her, it says, the upper and the lower springs. Now, what does this remind us of? It reminds us, of course, of Jesus when he said in Luke 11 that if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? See, I love the the scene that's developing here. We have a loving Father giving much-needed and life-sustaining water to his children. Right? And I love this because it's a scriptural picture, historically, of a spiritual reality personally. Right? The Holy Spirit right, is that living water. He's the spring that makes any of the land we dwell in usable. Right? He's the sustainer of our Christian life. And the Father, just like Caleb, the Father is only too glad to pour out the Holy Spirit on us if we just ask for it, right? Because if Akash had not asked for the water, right, they wouldn't have been given the, the springs, and they would have had what? Lots of useless land, land that couldn't sustain life at all. And so if our lives this morning are barren and if they're unable to sustain life, maybe all we need is a fresh supply of the living water of the Holy Spirit, Because let me encourage you today, whatever it is that you're facing or whatever trial it is that you're presently enduring, a fresh 
infusion of the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit into the situation can make all the difference, can't it? I mean, Paul reminds the Colossians that the Holy Spirit is nothing less than Christ in you, the hope of glory, right? But remember what James tells us. He says what? We have not because, because we ask not. Verse 16 says that now the children of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up from the city of Palms with the children of Judah into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the south near Arad. And they went and dwelt among the people. So the Kenites were descendants of Moses' father-in-law, and so they were allies of Israel. And it says they relocated to the city of Palms, which was basically Jericho, right? They went from there to another part of the land, but they were still under the protection of the tribe of Judah. Verse 17, and Judah went with his brother Simeon, and they attacked the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and utterly destroyed it. And so the name of the city was called Hormah. So after Judah and Simeon destroyed Hormah, now we're going to see them turn their attention to all the Philistine cities. Look in verse 18. It said, also Judah took Gaza with its territory, Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. So these first 18 verses, right, they record all of the early victories just of Judah and Simeon. Because look what's happened. These two tribes together had taken Bezek, Jerusalem, Hebron, Debir, Zephath, Gaza, Ascalon, and Ekron. Awesome. And yet, there's still more text, isn't there, this morning? And what we're going to see as we continue is that the rest of the chapter, rather than a, a recounting more and more victories, the rest of the chapter, chapter is a record of repeated defeats. And yet, look what happens. This record of those defeats actually starts with an important reminder and a pretty critical detail. Just take a message for me, if you would, and I'll... Uh... <laughs> Verse 19, it says that, So the Lord was with Judah. It says, And they drove out the inhabitants of the mountains, but they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland because they had chariots of iron. Now... What's important, of course, about the, the military history that we see in these verses is the first part of that verse there, that the Lord was with Judah, right? And, of course, that is the thing that gives them the victory. Romans 8.31 says that if God is for us, who can be against us? And that, of course, is such a foundational and a fundamentally important truth for every one of us as Christians. None of us would deny it. We all know how critical it is that the Lord is with us in our battles. And yet, understanding that verse is kind of where we run into trouble as we try to make sense of the second half of verse 19 where it says that they could not drive out the inhabitants of the lowland. Well, why not? The Lord indeed was with them, right? It was him that had led them to victory. He had delivered the enemy into their hands. So they did claim all of that hill country, but here it says because the Philistines had these iron chariots, the Jews had difficulty defeating them out on the level ground. So were the Philistines too powerful a force for the Lord? Of course not. That was a trick question, right? right? Was, the, was the power and the ability of the Lord, you know, 
was, was what he could provide to the tribe of Judah not sufficient to drive out the Philistines with all this technology? Of course not. Well, then what was the problem? Well, I assure you, the, Lord, the problem wasn't with the Lord, was it? The problem was, must have been with Judah. And again, the, the problem so often in our lives and in our walks, the problem in, in claiming and enjoying spiritual victory and blessing, the problem isn't the Lord, is it? The problem is us. See, you look at this, and Judah loved to fight their enemy up in the hill country, right, where the iron chariots couldn't get up there and oppose them. And they won the victory there. And yet when it came to a real battle with a formidable foe on the enemy's home court where they were clearly outnumbered and when they were clearly outpowered, Judah chose instead just to back down from that kind of a challenge. And is that any of us here this morning, right? We want to make spiritual progress with the Lord. And we know, at least we know theologically, we know that he's the one giving us the victory in our lives and over so many different areas of our lives. And then we come up against an iron chariot, right? And we just back down and we stay up, kind of stuck in the foothills instead of just pressing into the valley by faith. So for you today, what are your iron chariots? You know, what is it that's in your life that you're up against that's keeping you trapped up in the rocky hills? And sometimes we can say, hey, I'm doing so great in so many areas of my life. You know, the Lord has just miraculously given me victory over my swearing, my temper, my drinking, or, or this or that, or whatever it is for you. But, you know, maybe that's all just hill country stuff. What about those iron chariots that are down in the valley? What about those things that keep beating you up and leaving you bruised and battered and broke? You know, the Lord can help you to conquer those things too. He's capable, isn't he? The problem is not with the Lord, but we need to advance, not to retreat. We need to, to place the confidence that we have, we need to place it firmly in the Lord and his ability to just keep us moving forward. Because once we start giving up ground, it's even more difficult to recover, let alone to move forward. And the point for now is that Judah here, for the first time, they'd failed. And now this failure in the life of Israel, unfortunately, we're going to see it's not an isolated incident at all, but it's the beginning down a slippery slope to ruin. Look at what, the, what we see in the remaining verses of the chapter. It says that they gave Hebron to Caleb, as Moses had said, and that he expelled from there the three sons of Anak. But the children of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who inhabited Jerusalem. So the Jebusites dwell with the children of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So first Judah, now Benjamin. Right, so here the, the floodgates right, of compromise and of disobedience, they're just starting to kind of swing wide open. And failure to faithfully follow the Lord was taking its toll kind of one tribe at a time. And yet again now, verse 22, we're going to see some hope in the conquests of Joseph. It says in verse 22 that the house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. 
So the house of Joseph sent men to spy out Bethel. The name of the city was formerly Luz. And when the spies saw a man coming out of the city, they said to him, Please show us the entrance to the city, and we will show you mercy. So he showed them the entrance to the city, and they struck the city with the edge of the sword. But they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites, built a city, and called its name Luz, which is its name to this day. So once again, we see the key to victory right for the house of Joseph over the city of Bethel was that it says there in verse 22 that the Lord was with them, right? They had this faith again in Jehovah and their obedience to him brought victory in this initial conquest. And yet, as we now see in the next few verses, their failure to just kick the Canaanites from those other cities that they conquered shows us that there was kind of this sort of this growing culture of compromise, right? There was just this lack of faith that was pervasive. It says in verse 27, however, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shane and its villages or Tanakh and its villages or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages or the inhabitants of Iblam and its villages or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages for the Canaanites were determined to dwell in that land. Wow. So once again, you know, just like their brother Judah, we see that faced with this real battle and a difficult enemy, Manasseh backs down. Notice it says that the resolve of the Canaanites to remain in these cities, well, it must have been stronger than the faith of Manasseh to get rid of those guys. And, and I would submit to you this morning that the resolve of our enemy to maintain his territory in our lives, his resolve is equally as strong as it was of the Canaanites. And we just can't afford, we just shouldn't settle for less than having a total victory. Amen? You know, God had told Israel to totally wipe out the Canaanites completely. Back in Numbers 31, it says, Then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And then again in Deuteronomy 7, it says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Ouch. Right? This sounds almost like hate speech, doesn't it? Right? And, and these are the parts of the Bible that folks struggle with and they criticize us for. So wasn't it kind of cruel and unjust for God to command Israel to exterminate completely all of these harmless nations in Canaan? <laughs> well, of course it wasn't. To begin with, God had been patient with these people for centuries before this, and he had mercifully withheld his judgment, right? Their entire society, and especially their religion, was 
unspeakably wicked. And if it wasn't for God's mercy, they should have been wiped out years before Israel even ever got on the scene. And if you've traveled with us to Israel, you remember that when we visited the ruins of this very city of Megiddo here that's mentioned in verse 27, it overlooks the valley of Armageddon. And in the ruins of the city, you just see these huge, horrible altars where these sacrifices went on for centuries to these Canaanite gods. And the main deity in Canaan was Baal, right? So he was the god of rainfall and of fertility. And the goddess Ashtoreth was supposed to have been his spouse. So if you wanted to have fruitful orchards and vineyards and flourishing crops and and growing herds and, and prosperity, you would worship Baal by visiting a temple. And you'd go to this temple prostitute, and you'd even offer a human sacrifice of a baby or a child or a woman. And so there was this lure, this, this evil lure, this combination of idolatry and immorality leading to prosperity, and men just couldn't resist it. It was like saying, wait a minute. You mean I can be sexually immoral and then prosper from it? Oh, yeah, where do I sign up for that program, Right. This is exactly why God said to wipe these people off the face of the earth, get rid of that religion completely so that it wouldn't be a snare to them. God didn't want the filth of the Canaanites to contaminate his beautiful people of Israel. They were his special people, and they had been chosen and called out to fulfill his divine purpose in the world. They would be the one who would give the world the knowledge of the true God and who would give the world the scriptures and ultimately the Savior, right? And in order to accomplish those purposes, they had to be separated from all the other nations because if Israel was polluted by all of the ungodly sins around them, then how could the Son of the Holy God come into the world? Again, G. Campbell Morgan Wrote this. He says that God is perpetually at war with sin. That is the whole explanation of the extermination of the Canaanites. I would have done better just to have read his explanation, right? Okay, in case you haven't yet made the connection, I want to make it for us all this morning. We, the church, okay, we have not replaced Israel in God's program. Okay? The scriptures say that God will bless them. He will return and, and deal with them and, and give them all the things that he's promised them. And yet for the time being, in God's program, we are to fulfill the role that he had intended for Israel. We are to be the ones, the church, to reveal the truth of his word and to reveal the love of his son to the world around us. And we can't do that effectively unless we are sanctified, unless we're also set apart from the filth of the world so that we're allowed to just shine brightly for him. In the, in the very same way that, you know, diamonds shine so brightly at the mall when they, they roll out that black cloth and they put the beautiful diamonds on there and they just glow. And you see, what happens is when we allow sin in our lives, 
to just mar the brightness of our testimony, we, just like the children of Israel, we can't be used by God the way he wants to use us. And we forfeit the opportunity to be part of the work that he's doing. Right? Instead of taking God at his word, instead of responding obediently in faith, here the children of Israel had started down this slippery slope of sin and of disobedience. And watch next, they were even fooling themselves into thinking that what they were doing was somehow okay. Because in verse 28 it says that it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites under tribute, but they did not completely drive them out. So again, instead of driving them out, what Israel did is they made the Canaanites into sort of into slaves, right? They, they were able to kind of rationalize their failures by benefiting from them and keeping those heathen peoples around. It's like, well, we weren't exactly, you know, we're not exactly following what the Lord said, but we are taking advantage of a bad situation, and, and God just didn't sort of see the possibilities here, right? We're like, well, I, I know I really shouldn't be in this place with these people doing these things, you know, but at least I'm here making the best of a bad situation and I'm letting my light shine. Well, you might, you might be, right? Or you might be rationalizing your sin and your disobedience to the word, and only you and the Lord together know for sure. But for the Jews, right, just as it does so often for us, all this did was lead to more trouble, right? Because there was no compensation that could, that could pay for these endless problems that this compromise with the Canaanites was going to bring to the Jews. How clear could it have been? Joshua specifically warned them against compromising with the enemy, and now here they are falling into that very trap. It's all downhill from here. Verse 29, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer. So the Canaanites dwelt in Gezer among them, nor did Zebulun drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nehalol. So the Canaanites dwelt among them and were put under tribute. Nor did Asher drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alhab, Agzib, Helba, Afik, or Rehob. So the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Nor did Naphtali drive out the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Bet Anath. But they dwelt among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Bet Shemesh and Bet Anath were put under tribute to them. So, Benjamin, Ephraim, Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, all of them failed to overcome the enemy, and most of them rationalized their failure with the whole putting the enemy under tribute program, right? They failed to appreciate that allowing these Canaanites to dwell among them would eventually bring them into social and into spiritual crisis. And I think it's interesting that because the crisis wasn't immediate, it led them to think that it wasn't real, and yet it was certain because God said that it would be certain. Only trusting and, and only an obedience to God could have spared them from these cycles of sin and disobedience and pain and poverty that we're going to read about in the book of Judges as they knowingly 
disobeyed the Lord and they allowed these godless nations to continue living in land that was given to them by God. One more quick thing before we finish up. Notice up until this point, when a tribe of Israel failed to drive out the enemy, it always said that the Canaanites dwelt among them, right? Notice here beginning in verse 31 with Asher's failure. In verse 32, it now says that the Asherites dwelt among the Canaanites. You see, it's kind of a subtle, yet it's a super significant difference, right? Most of the tribes were able to occupy at least part of their territory. And now from Asher forward, not only are they not driving the Canaanites out, they're just settling in land that still sort of belonged to the Canaanites functionally. And if that wasn't bad enough, look at verse 34. It says that the Amorites forced the children of Dan into the mountains, for they would not allow them to come down to the valley. So they're chasing the whole tribe of Dan back up into the hills. They don't even get a spot down in the plains. This was a mess. Verse 35, the Amorites were determined to dwell in Mount Herez, in Ajalon, and in Shalbim. Yet when the hand of the house of Joseph became stronger, they were put under tribute. Now the boundary of the Amorites was from the ascent of Akrabim, from Selah, and upward. What a wreck, right? Here what began with this beautiful series of victories. You remember the first half of the chapter? This beautiful series of victories led by the Lord ended up as this series of terrible compromise. Judah couldn't drive out the inhabitants of the valley. Benjamin couldn't overcome the Jebusites. And then all of the other tribes started settling down with the heathen nations, right? And so the stage is now sadly set for the whole rest of the book. We've got 18 verses of victory and then some compromise and then 18 verses of failure. What happened? Well, the first step the children of Israel took was the neglecting of the word of God. Right? And as God's children, maybe even some of us here this morning, We've been falling for that same mistake ever since. You remember that the priests of the nation of Israel had this copy of the book of Deuteronomy, and they were commanded to read it publicly to the nation every sabbatical year during the Feast of Tabernacles. And if they had been faithful to their job, the spiritual leaders would have read Deuteronomy 7 just like we read earlier this morning, and they would have warned the Israelites repeatedly not to spare these pagan neighbors for any reason. They would have reminded the people of God's promises. They would have reminded them that God would be there to help them defeat their enemies. Right? Romans ten seventeen, of course, says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's as we hear and as we're reminded of what God has communicated to us through his word, our faith in him and our faith in his power and ability to help us, it just increases. And then we're able to continue to move ahead, pushing in and claiming that precious inheritance. You know, it was by reading and it was by receiving the law. That's the way that Joshua had grown in his faith 
and courage. In Joshua chapter 1, it says that the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. And that very same word would have enabled a new generation to overcome their enemies and to claim their inheritance. But what is it that we see today? We see exactly what Paul said to Timothy, that the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. There are too many believers today that are trying to live on religious fast food, right? Meals that are sort of designed for easy consumption where there's really no chewing necessary and there's all these entertaining teachers who give people what they want but don't tell them what they need or, or these pastors who are more concerned about being popular with the sheep than the protecting of the sheep. I'm so super glad I'm not very entertaining and I'm glad that not many of you like me. Amen? Amen. I'm okay. (laughs) You know, it's a slippery slope, right? Because when we start to ignore God's word, we start to compromise what it says. We start to doubt its authority over every area of our life. And then we're headed for disaster, but we're headed there one little step at a time. Nobody ever intended to become a drug addict and die from a drug overdose. But it happens one step at a time, right? And and nobody ever intends to ruin their marriage with an adulterous affair, but it happens over time, one step at a time. And nobody ever intends to live a barren, unfruitful, unsatisfying relationship with the Lord, but it happens over time, one step at a time, right? Just like the nation of Israel, first they tolerated the enemy. Then they started taking tribute or you know, receiving taxes from the enemy. Then they started mixing with the enemy. And then finally, they just surrendered to the enemy. And what we'll see on our Wednesdays together is that it was only through God's deliverers, right? These judges that God raised up who pointed the children of Israel back to the word of the Lord. Then the Israelites found victory every single time. Every single time. It's so easy for all of us just to settle down with sin, especially when it seems like progress is getting more and more difficult. And But we start to miss out on the blessings that come from just being completely dedicated and devoted to the Lord. And we miss out on that complete victory in the Lord, even when things are difficult. I'm going to let you in on a little secret this morning. You may want to write this down, maybe in your friend's Bible or on the bulletin that you're not reading. Here it is. God never intended for Israel to conquer the land of Canaan easily. He never intended that it was going to happen quickly, right? Both Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7, they both say that God intended to give them the land little by little by little because God wanted to be the one to take them through. You know, as they exercised constant trust in him, frequent battles 
you know, that he would win on their behalf, that's how they would win. That's how they would enter in. And yet it was almost as if Israel said, you know what? If we can't have it easy, we just don't want it at all. And you're lucky we're running out of time, so I won't belabor the point here. Certainly you can all see the parallel here with our Christian lives. Suffice to say, let's not, church, let's not fall into this same trap. Instead, let's persevere, even when we come up against those iron chariots in our lives, right? Because if we face them now, and if we do it in the power and in the might of the Lord and of his spirit working in us and then through us, and if we're diligent not to compromise, but we just take God at his word, we recognize its authority over our lives, even in the minor areas of our life and our faith, then, right, unlike the poor children of Israel this morning, then we'll be able to just enter into this abundant blessing that's ours, right? The abundant blessing that comes in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it was he himself that said in John chapter 10, he said that he came that we might have life and that we might have it more abundantly. Amen? Let's pray. Father, how we thank you, Lord, for your word and for the encouragement that it brings us, Lord, just to persevere. And we thank you most, Lord, that you don't just send us out, Lord, but you lead us in. And so, Father, we pray that you'd be with us even now, Father. We pray that you would help to minister these truths to our hearts, Lord. Um, Lord, give us just fertile soil so that your word would implant and grow and yield. And Father, we just pray even now that as we continue to worship, Lord, as we offer our tithes and offerings as an act of worship, Father, we pray that you would just do that deep work in each one of us that only you can do, Lord. Help us not to be discouraged, Lord, but may we be encouraged in your ability, Lord, your love and your desire to bring us to a new place, Lord, inheriting fully all that you've promised and given us through Jesus Christ. Lord, we ask it expectantly, and we ask it in his precious name. Amen.